Welcome to the Bottom Line Up Front Podcast. I am Siad Colon Lopez, your fourth Siad. Today, I have a very, very special guest to start the new year, and that is Miss Jessica Buchanan. You know, she's a teacher, public speaker, humanitarian, a best-selling author, and a hostage survivor. In October 2011, while she was working at, as the education advisor for her non-governmental organization, or NGO, she was abducted at gunpoint by Somali pirates. I'm excited to talk to her today as we reach her 10th anniversary from the day that she was rescued. And also, I'm excited to go ahead and speak about the personal connection that we have based on this incident that took place, like I said, about a decade ago. So it is my honor and pleasure to introduce Jessica. Jessica, welcome to the podcast, and uh, it is an honor to have you here. Thank you. I mean, I feel very grateful and very lucky to be here right now. Well, I, and, you know, we, we spoke a little bit before we got uh, the cameras and the mics rolling, but uh, it, is, it is really surreal for us to be sitting here today after the events of uh, that, that day. So before we get deep into the conversation, uh, your book is out there. It's, it is a bestseller. Uh, a lot of people know your story because you have been doing a lot of TEDx talks. Um, but uh, if you wouldn't mind, please uh, talk a little bit about the events that transpired between 2011 and 2012 leading to your rescue. So I am a teacher by profession and um, I wound up teaching in an international school in 2006, 2007, um, to about 2009 in Nairobi, Kenya. And I met my husband, Eric, in Nairobi. He was working for, he's a Swedish, uh, well, he's an American citizen now, but at the time he was a Swedish national and he was working for a Swedish uh, humanitarian organization. And, um, you know, we were young and we fell in love and got married and he then was moved to another organization that was based up in Somaliland, up in Hargeisa in the northern part. And um, yeah, long distance and back and forth just wasn't working for us. So I decided to quit my teaching job in Nairobi and move up to Hargeisa with him. Um, and, you know, I didn't have a job, but I'm a teacher, so I'm a jack of all trades. And um, I started teaching English, we had a bunch of refugees living on the compound that we were staying in and um, there were some kids running around. So uh, that's naturally who I'm drawn to and I um, started teaching English. And before I knew it, I had an entire dining room full of students who would come in on their lunch breaks to learn. And then that progressed into um, doing some consultancies for the UN and in countries like Somalia or Somaliland, which is still not um, recognized, uh, but they have so many um, ongoing issues with, you know, like leftover explosives. They're still recovering even 30 years out from civil war. And so there was a big problem in the area with kids running around picking up shiny objects and then they would blow up and, and they would maim them or they would blind them or severely burn them. And so I ended up um, actually creating curriculum for um, the country in the social sciences in conjunction with the uh, UN um, on mine risk education and firearm safety education. And it's so interesting because, you know, you just like do the next right thing and take the next opportunity that comes to you. And I didn't know anything about mine risk education when I moved to Hargeisa, but I learned and um, what I found was there were not very many um, actually formally trained teachers 
working in these environments. And so my skill set to actually make the material ingestible and stick with our, um, you know, the, the people in the villages and the kids, my methods worked because I was a trained teacher. So I ended up getting a job for a Danish organization, the Danish Demining Group, and managing their entire East Africa portfolio. And I would travel from South Sudan all the way down to um, Kenya and Uganda. And essentially, I mean, I was living my best life. I was so happy. I um, really felt like we discussed earlier how um, like purpose and meaning is so important. Um, and I felt like I had a lot of purpose and a lot of meaning in the job that I was doing. I, you know, I feel like a lot of times I'm touted as like going to Africa to save children. And that's not how I see myself or what I set out to do. But I grew up in, in a household where it was very important to use the skills and the talents that we've been given and to try to make the world safer and better. And so I felt like I was doing some sort of service. Um, and it was interesting and, and fun. It wasn't all altruistic all the time. It was just a really cool life. And um, I was called upon to hold a training down in the southern part of Somalia in Galkayo in October of 2011. Um, and it was part of my portfolio, but I hadn't been down there yet. We had a DDG, had a field office down there. Um, and I'd had two trainings scheduled down there, but I canceled both of them because of security issues. I just didn't feel good about it. And, you know, like expats were not typically the target. And, but I also didn't feel like I was, you know, providing food assistance or medical um, equipment or life-saving work. I was just down there training staff. So I didn't feel like I needed to put my, my safety at risk to go down and train the staff. The staff could have come up to Hargeza or something like that. Um, but my colleague, Paul, he was um, a Danish gentleman that was heading up supporting that field office. Um, I'll say that he put a lot of pressure on me to come down and conduct that particular staff training. And um, so I felt really cornered and like I didn't have much of a choice if I wanted to maintain my job that I loved. So I got on a UN plane um, and headed down to Galkayo and it was a three-day staff training. And the first two days were in the North office um, and they went great because um, we had two separate staff because they could not easily cross over this green line that separated the town of Galkayo. Um, so they belonged to different clans. So I worked with one a set of staff that belonged to one clan. And then I was going to have to cross over the green line and go to the other field office in a separate convoy of vehicles, working with a separate set of staff. And I was really nervous about that. Um, but they had been going back and forth easily and, and nothing had really happened that I knew of. And um, so the third day, um, which would be October 25th, 2011, um, I woke up that morning, I had had nightmares like all night long that we, that I was being kidnapped by pirates. <laughs> and I remember looking at myself in the mirror and thinking like, do I really want to do this? Um, but I'm here and all of this, all these logistics have been organized. The convoys are waiting for us. My staff is waiting for me. Um, 
but I knew in my gut that something was wrong, but I ignored myself and I ignored what I knew to be true. And that has been one of my greatest life lessons we can talk about later. Um, and so I got ready and walked out the door and into a whole new life. Um, so we made it across the green line. We conducted the staff training and everything went fairly well. We concluded around three o'clock, I think, in the afternoon. Um, and I noticed we had a, a local a Somali security advisor. His name is Abdi Rizak. And I noticed that he kept getting on the phone and, you know, but I, I don't speak Somali. He spoke a little bit at the time, but not enough to be able to follow his conversations. And then he'd get off and he'd say, we had to wait 10 more minutes. The vehicles weren't ready. And I kept thinking, why aren't the vehicles ready? Like their only job is to pick us up. They should be here waiting for us. But it wasn't my field station. I, you know, I wasn't in charge. So I deferred to my colleague, Paul. And um, no one seemed to think anything was a mess. So it took like 45 minutes for the convoy to come and pick us up from the compound. But when they finally did, there were three land cruisers. There were armed guards in the front and we were in the middle. Paul was in the front uh, passenger side, which was on the left. And I was behind him in the back. And Abdi Rizek got in next to me. And then we had armed guards in the back of the vehicle. And then a, a third vehicle behind us with armed uh, guards. And we pulled through the compound gates and started driving through Galcayo, probably at like 25 miles an hour. You know, the streets are narrow and bumpy and it had been raining. So everything was a bit muddy. Um, and we drove for maybe like five or 10 minutes. And, you know, I'm not really paying attention. I, I, I'm like on my phone texting my husband and checking my work emails and, you know, doing the normal things, wondering when I'm going to get my workout in or whatever. And um, a, a vehicle just roars, uh, really like rushes past us on the right side and, and cuts us off so that we can't keep going and splashes, splashes mud up all over the windows and the windshield. And I can remember thinking, what a jerk. Like who drives like, <laughs> like that? I think people drive like, you know, idiots everywhere, but this was particularly stupid. And um, then I hear, I, I actually feel more than I hear the crack of the butt of an AK on the car hood. And then I start hearing all of this um, screaming, all of like very angry sounding Somali men surround our vehicle. Um, and then Abdi Rizak's door is pulled open and there's a man dressed in a, a SPU uniform, like a specialized police uniform. He's got an AK and he pulls Abdi Rizak out of the car. I remember he like drags him out of the seatbelt, like the seatbelt is still on him. And I remember him just like bashing his head into the ground with his gun. And I am not processing anything, you know, at this moment, like I've been through heat trainings with my organization, but nothing can prepare you for whatever this is to actually happen. A, a little bit of shock. Like, absolutely. And I'm, I'm just like, kind of feeling like I'm almost like floating outside my body watching all of this happen. And then this guy, he, and he has like pock marks all over his face and he is, his eyes are just like wild. Um, he gets in where Abdi Rizak was and he puts the gun to my head and somebody gets in the back and crawls into the back of the Land Cruiser. And then he starts screaming at the driver 
to drive. Um, and we just tear off through town. Um, and I can tell we're heading south, which to me is a really bad sign because I think south is Mogadishu. Yes. South is Al Shabaab. And mm-hmm. um, I'm an American woman. My passport is in my work bag. There's no way I can fake being American if they don't know because my ID is right there. Um, and I, my mind just like starts to shut down and all I can think are just two things. Like I have two very rudimentary thoughts and um, that just keep going on repeat. And the first thing is that um, this is bad. This is really, really bad. Like whatever this is, may, maybe at best they're going to carjack us and take our sat phones and our belongings and kick us out and we can walk back to town. Um, but whatever it is, I don't have a frame of reference for it. So I don't know how to start making a plan and um, because I don't know what to compare it to. Um, and then the second thing I keep thinking is like, even if at best they kick us out and we walk back to town, I think my life from this point on will never be the same again because it was more than just the act of like the car being taken over. It was a shattering of my belief that things don't happen to girls like me. You know, I'm, I'm a good, good Christian girl. And I'm using air quotes here, right? I grew up in the Midwest. I'm from Ohio. I'm a school teacher, you know, like I, I should be like, um, exempt from pain and suffering somehow, you know, such a stupid thing to think. But I think in those moments you're like, wow, okay, like this is happening. Um, and so we just drive for hours. Um, We stop, guys get out of the car, different guys get in. We stop again. We have to get into other vehicles. I can remember Paul being in the front seat at one point, turning around to check on me. And I just whispered to him, what, what is happening? And he looked at me, um, I think with pity and, and just said, we're being kidnapped. Um, and we, I mean, we just drive, we drive all night. And I remember at one point hearing a very high-pitched voice behind me, like, and it sounded like a woman mm-hmm. sitting right behind me. And I thought that would be very, very strange, especially in Somali culture where men and women are kept very separate. Um, and I finally, like, I, my curiosity got the best of me, even in the middle of all of that. And I turned around and it was a little boy. Um, probably not. Well, I learned eventually that he was nine years old and his name was Abdullahi. Um, he had actually attended one of the uh, trainings that I had created and was wearing my organization's uh, paraphernalia and swag. So um, that felt like an ultimate betrayal. Yes. And um, we finally drive into, you know, for hours into the middle of the night and stop. And um, we're forced out of the vehicle and ordered to walk out into the desert. And the man who orders me out, he has a, like a long 
I don't know the technical names, but it's a machine gun of some sort. And he's wearing chains of ammo and he has a, a turban on his head. And so at this point, I don't, I, I don't know who has us. I don't know if um, this is ideological. I don't know if this is going to be a ransom situation. What I do know or what I think I know is that whatever is waiting for me out there is not going to be good. Um, I'm surrounded by men. I am the only woman. I um, suspect that I'm going to be assaulted and then probably murdered. And so I tell him no. Like I'm thinking he can just shoot me right here. I'm not going out there. Um, and he gets really aggressive and in my face and we go back and forth like this. And Paul comes over to me and he um, takes my hand and he says, Jessica, you know, we need to walk. And so we walk out into, it's just black. It's just a void. It's just dark sky. It's dark night. Um, we I remember tripping over rocks and thorn bushes because I can't see. I'm just using my hands to feel my way, but I'm hearing the the clink of like their ammo as they're walking, and it feels like more of them are coming out of the shadows. And it suddenly it's not just ten, but it's twenty, and then it's thirty. And we walk for I don't know how long. It feels like an eternity. Um. And I say goodbye to my husband and I say goodbye to my father, my siblings, and I... Your phone had been taken away. Everything's been taken away. Um, There was, it was strange though, because I I have a thyroid condition Mm -hmm. and I like without medication, I'll, I'll die. Um, And I had my medication in the bag, in my bag with me. And um, I remember somehow thinking I need to get my medication when we got out of the vehicle before they started marching us out into the desert and um, they let me take it. And I do remember thinking if that, why would they let me take my medication if they're going to kill me? So that gave you a little bit of hope. I mean, I think at that, in those moments, like you're grasping onto anything, whether it's logical or not. Yeah. But I mean, I'm being marched out into the middle of nowhere surrounded by an army of armed men. There's not very much hope at this point. Um, at this point, yeah, I'm just saying goodbye and I'm asking my mom for help. She died the year before I'm asking for strength, um, and dignity. Like that felt very important to me. I mean, I think, Many of us, I can imagine, especially the men and women that you serve with, think about what those moments are going to be like at the end (laughs) if you get a chance to be cognizant that it is the end and you wonder what you're going to do and what it's going to be like. And um, I definitely never expected to go out that way. And so it took me by surprise and um, I just, it was very important for me to, to be dignified at the end. Um, And then they order us down onto our knees. Um, 
And then they just tell us to go to sleep. So at that point, when you know that they're in control, and we had had a rash of incidents, because shortly before your rescue, we had executed the rescue captain Phillips at sea. Um, and, you know, the kidnap for ransom business was something that was very common in the area, especially by the pirates, you know. Al-Shabaab would have been a different story, and you know that that yeah. typically doesn't end well. No. So, but at this point, you still didn't know no. who had you. Mm -mm. So when they order you to your knees, what went through your mind at that point, at that time? This is the end. This is it. And I don't understand why. Like, I'm not fighting in some war. I'm not, I mean, I'm a humanitarian aid worker. If they didn't want me here, I wish somebody would have said so. <laughs> um, absolutely naive, but not so naive to, you know, I mean, I've gone in here on the order of my organization under the security and protection of the United Nations. Like I am, um, I'm supposed to be okay. Um, I was 32 at the time and I, um, I wanted to become a mother and I kept thinking about the fact that I had just put it off and it, I was never going to get that chance. Um, you know, all of the regrets, all of the things that I never got a chance to do and the things that I didn't get a chance to say. Um, and then it was all just a big ploy, right, to, to scare us um, because they just wanted us to go to sleep. Um, and so I, I think it's very interesting how your mind will shut down and let your body take over in these circumstances and it knows what you what you need in order to protect itself and to survive and so it's so weird but i like i passed out i think from the, the stress and i think i did sleep for a little while um because i remember waking up when it was starting to get light out and paul was there and he had laid awake all night and he was you know, trying to figure out what was going on and who had us and, and had figured out that they'd made some calls to the UK because he could hear, um, like, a, I don't like, you know, when you dialed the wrong number or something and it mm -hmm. was, it was in English. So he was starting to piece things together. Um, it would take a very long time for us to figure out, I mean, it's just so complicated and layered in terms of clans and who had us and who was collaborating with who. And, they, you know, they would then move us. I think we moved 50 to 60 times throughout the course of the captivity. So um, it was hard to keep information straight. Yeah. Um, but... I do remember thinking when I woke up that morning, if I can survive the next 48 hours, if I can stay alive, uh, AKA if they don't kill me, then I think I have a pretty good chance at surviving. Well, and that was, uh, that is a perfect uh, segue into uh, the, the next chapter in the story. Because now you know your capture now you're assuming that they're not probably going to kill me anytime uh, immediately. 
they're keeping us alive for a reason. And Paul Fisted is uh, is is piecing things together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, English language probably trying to reach somebody that you know either you know they're they're assuming that Paul is probably a British citizen, so they're trying to get somebody to get money out of it, mm-hmm. which is something that actually can be comforting because mm-hmm. now you know that hey, I'm worth something. I'm not just something that I'm going to be used for. I'm not a thief. Yes. So um, talk to me about the following morning or the next time. You say you slept for a little bit, but then you woke up. So what happened? Then it was just a, you know, sit and we eat scenario. We kept asking, well, you know, we didn't, I mean, maybe we asked once or twice. And they, there were so many, in my memory, there were so many um men around like it just felt like dozens milling around and you know setting up camp of course they're all chewing chat and so they're high and they're hopped up everybody is very very nervous um and we're trying to figure out how we're going to get water you know it's kind of like first order of business is like we need some water to drink we need food to eat. Um, someone dropped a, like a small container of biscuits uh, for us to eat. And, um, you know, then it was also like the brass tacks of being a hostage, like holding on to the cardboard because you might need toilet paper or trying to figure out someone dropped off um, a small tin of tuna fish which would then we would exist on for the entire captivity um like how do you eat a tin of tuna fish with your hands and you know stuff like that how do you how are you going to keep clean um in and stay alive and because there are so many different facets of trying to protect yourself um in a hostage situation and we kept asking for, you know, can we call our organization? Can we call our family? And they kept saying, we're waiting for the translator. We're waiting for the translator. And we kept thinking that they meant the negotiator, but they didn't have the language for it, that they were just using the wrong word. And so we sat there for like a week before they let us make any kind of call. And which we felt like was very long, but now in retrospect, understanding how, hostage takings in this part of the world work and how (laughs) immeasurably long they can be a week was was nothing a week is like a second in in some of people's situations um and then they brought this man his name was uh he called himself jabril and he was i don't know how old he was but he seemed elderly and hunched over and missing teeth and he had pretty good English language. Um, he said he was a teacher in Mogadishu and he had indeed been brought to translate. And so we were like, oh, okay. So they really did mean a translator. Um, and then it just spiraled from there into, I, some, sometimes it was just ludicrous. Some of the, the events that would unfold in terms of like, you know, driving us deep, deep, deep out into the desert in the middle of the night and putting us on the phone and 
but we, they shut down our family's phone numbers. And I didn't know this, of course, then, but now I know that then the FBI was involved immediately because it was a crime against an American, but then they are trying to coordinate with the Danish government. Then you have my organization involved. You have a very angry Swedish man, my husband involved, who knew the Somali region very, very well because he's worked there for over 20 years. Um, and uh, my family, uh, Paul's family, I mean, it, the, all the moving pieces on that side, it, it's just so vastly complicated. I think it's like almost as complicated on the family side as it is on the hostages side, because there's just so many people involved in so much coordination. And I mean, I, I can't even fathom the amount of coordination that was going on and um, that I now have just heard bits and pieces of. Um, but yeah, you, it is the most terrorizing boredom I have ever or will ever experience because half the time you're scared out of your mind and then the other half you're bored out of your mind. And so it becomes, it's just a waiting game. Yeah. yeah and, and, and the, the waiting game is a, is a way to put it because sometimes when you're in those type of situations, time speeds up and a lot of times it just grossly slows down. down. So I couldn't even imagine uh, those days, you know, between your tuna meals, you know, looking for water, trying to go ahead and take care of your basic needs and fearing for your life, okay. how things were like. But 93 days in those conditions, um, I'm going to tell the audience now the other side of things. Mm -hmm. So when Jessica was uh, kidnapped, you know, we got notified at my former unit. I was in a, in a specialized unit in, uh, in the special operations arena. And we have been tracking a lot of the intelligence into uh, where Jessica was, who she was working with, her medical condition, the company that she was keeping. We were trying to go ahead and track that rat line that she spoke about, that this, this group of SUVs left and they started traveling south. Then we started changing vehicles. We started going to different places. And that is a usual tactic when you have a kidnap for Ryan or something, because they know yeah. that the big eye in the sky is always watching. So we have been tracking your situation and uh, there were two things that we were always looking for. And that was proof of identification, knowing that it was you and Paul, and proof of life. Um, after the first uh, few weeks of the captivity, it almost gives you a sense to where, okay, um, maybe we have a little bit of time to go ahead and uh, find them because it was, it was a needle in a haystack, yeah. really. Uh, this particular groups, they know the lay of the land really well. They know where to bet down. They know how to go ahead and blend with the population if there's population around. And we constantly kept a team around the clock looking and looking and looking. Um, Shortly after your kidnapping, uh, you got kidnapped in October, uh, late November, right around Thanksgiving, I had to leave the command. And it was almost like a disappointment that I didn't get to see Bell, you know, as uh, you were calling the objective, uh, Arctic Fusion, um, that I didn't get to see this particular mission pan out. But I checked into my new unit at Herbert Field in Florida, the first special, uh, first special operations wing. 
And we were still tracking because we were then the air component that typically supports missions like yours, you know, uh, hostage rescue. So on that particular afternoon, and this is actually on the 21 January, uh, it was a Saturday, I remember. And Janet and I, my wife, we started watching a movie and I got the, the alert to report to duty. Report to duty usually meant that either we were doing an exercise or there was something that we needed to go ahead and deploy quickly. Our bags are always packed just in case it happens, you know, all habits die hard. So, so I reported to the Joint Operations Center and I met with uh, Colonel Bonfine at the time uh, and uh, with Colonel Seif, who was the first Special Operations Wing Commander. And the first words were like, all right, so the president made the decision to go ahead and get Jessica. Her health is not doing all that well. We need to go ahead and get her back. We have an idea where she's at. We can go ahead and keep on tracking. And then as soon as we have the proof of life, uh, positive ID on both her and uh, Paul, we'll be able to go ahead and execute the mission. So Colonel Slife made the call right there in the, in the briefing that I needed to go on the mission because of my habitual relationships with the people that were going to go ahead and execute this. And uh, part of me was glad, but part of me was pissed because I was no longer going to be the person that was going to go ahead and execute the rescue. Now I am part of the headquarters element that is supposed to run this, uh, this mission. So in a matter of uh, an hour or so, we boarded a small plane, went to Fort Bragg, started the planning for the mission, waited for the C-17s to come out uh, to go ahead and get the force moved and postured uh, in Djibouti. And then we set up camp in uh, Camp Lemonnier and send a headquarters element uh, or a small element forward to Galcayo, the vicinity of uh, where, you, where you were last sighted. So we had uh, a very, very diverse group of people and by diverse, I mean different backgrounds. So we had logisticians, we had mechanics, we had pilots, uh, intelligence personnel, you have people from uh, all the army, the Navy, the Air Force represented, uh, a few Marines that were stationed there at uh, Camp Lemonnier. And now everybody's postured to go ahead and uh, get your rescue. Now you are at the tail end of your captivity, 93 days into it. What is going through your mind at this point? I'm feeling pretty low and I have gotten um, a urinary tract infection and I'm fairly confident that it's moving into a kidney infection because I've had one before and I was hospitalized in Nairobi and actually had to have surgery. Um, so I, I know that this is not a good thing for me. Um, I need an IV. I need to be in a hospital. I need IV antibiotics. Um, I'm, you know, throwing up all the time. I am crawling to the bush and um, and it's interesting because day by day, your humanity just gets broken down a, a, like a little bit more, a little bit more. And then you realize that you are no longer a human being anymore. You're just a commodity yeah. and you don't actually have to, you know, you don't have to be healthy. <laughs> you just need to be alive enough so that you can be cashed in. And that's all that matters. And um, so I'd stopped asking for medicine. I'd stopped asking for a doctor and um, I'd given up on that. 
And, um, I, we, we had, we were ordered to sit under trees, like acacia trees or large bushes during the day. And they were very concerned about somebody watching us, you know, drones or whatever. And I thought that was preposterous because I had no concept of what was going on. And I'm like, we're just a couple of aid workers. You don't have to worry about it. No one knows we're here. Like, you know, I was very wrong, but I couldn't have known that at the time. Um, and we then were, had to drag our mats out into the field to sleep out in the open at night. And I never understood why they wanted us to do that, but that's what we had to do. So the sun goes down around six o'clock, fall asleep, wake up probably around midnight because um, I'm sick. And I um, there were nine guys on the ground that night. And um, always at least one of them was awake. Somebody had to keep guard, make sure we're not going to escape, make sure we're not going to be attacked. Um, but everybody was passed out. And, and I needed to, to use a bush. So I said the word toilet, which was just how we generally asked to be excused from the mat. And um, no one woke up. So I say toilet again. No one wakes up. So I had a small pen light that they had given me. So I start flashing that because I want them to know that I haven't tried to escape or run away. I go to my bush, do what I need to do. I come back to my mat, try to get myself settled in. But I can start hearing a... It sounds like there's a small animal or something coming through the brush around me. And we're separated. We're in the same camp, Paul and I, but we've been separated for many weeks now and haven't really been allowed to talk to each other um, as a punishment for negotiations not going well. And so um, he's, I don't know, several hundred yards away from me. I don't, I, I can't see him and it's really dark. It's um, cloudy. It had been clearer that night, but then the stars and everything had disappeared. And I mean, so dark, I couldn't really see my hand in front of my face. Um, and then I get up to shake my blanket out because I think it might be bugs or something. And then I lay back down. I do this a couple of times and finally I just give up because I'm, I know my only escape is sleep. And so I lay back down to go to sleep and then about 30 seconds goes by and the pirate sleeping on my left, I hear him. I can't really see him, but I hear him jump up and he is um, holding his AK and he's screaming at the other pirates to wake up, to get up. And then the night just erupts into automatic gunfire. Um, so let's go ahead and pause right there for a second. Um, I'm going to read you a couple of the notes that I had in here. Uh, but on uh, 22nd January, you know, so we were en route via C-17 and just dis discussed the priorities of work with Colonel Barnfine, you know, what we we're going to do once we hit the ground. Uh, and then I started uh, reflecting about when I was looking at the people that were involved in this mission, because a lot of them were in shock. They have never been called upon to do what we were about to do. And I put in here, the train like you fight and organize like you fight and now solidify my belief on excellence in garrison leads to victory in combat. Mm. The way that we train actually has a purpose. So I, I was thinking about how I was gonna keep communicating with the force to make sure that we kept them engaged uh, once we got on the ground to keep them uh, going. But uh, I also wrote this entry here that, uh, you know, 
Operators save lives, regardless of risk to themselves. Such commitment instills trust in others that someone will come. All right. Um, and that was really, really what almost every single person in that organization at the time, when I say organization, I'm talking all of the services working together to execute this mission. And then I put in here, you know, the uh, the formula for understanding what a service uh, core competency encapsulates is simple. And it's all about the winning effects. Winning effects meaning getting you back alive to your family. And that was purpose plus mission plus capabilities, which is systems and skills, you know, are all required for success. This is something that we just talked about. And what happened in the next 72 hours from the second that we hit the ground is number one, we had a maintenance issue with one of the planes that we flew from Herbert Field, the Talon 2s that we ended up deploying to perform the parachute jump into get into uh, getting to you on Paul. So one of the aircraft broke okay. and we're like, all right, we need the aircraft to go ahead and execute this mission. So we ended up coordinating with Bagram in Afghanistan. No flight operations because they had a snowstorm, a couple of other things. So we were able to go ahead and get planes to start making their way to Camp Lemonier to be able to serve as a backup. Now, what I witnessed in those 72 hours were all of those maintainers, those mechanics that I spoke to you about, the security forces that were there to make sure that they kept the, the cordon outside the operations because we wanted to make sure that we exercise full operational security. The element that went forward to Galcayo, everybody was waiting for the planes to be ready in order to go ahead and put the operators, the assaulters, in the aircraft so that they can parachute in, travel several kilometers to your position, undetected in a period of darkness to be able to surprise the enemy and get you. That was the operational side. The sustainment side of this operation were a lot of people and a lot of them in their early 20s that refused to go to bed because they wanted to be there if the aircraft was going to depart at any moment to go and get you. They refused to go and get food. They will send a runner, and the runner was the most unlucky person because if the mission went, then they will be left out of the mission. And they were working around the clock just to do so, just because of that purpose. They knew what was going to happen, and nobody, nobody wanted to fail you. Now, the operation, and I'll go ahead and turn it back to you over from the shots fired, but this is what led to that particular uh, scenario. So we had cloud cover over the target. It was coming, it was very spor sporadic. The decision was made to go ahead and uh, proceed with the mission. The parachute insertion went as planned. Team landed, they ended up securing the parachutes and then they started their patrol toward your location. They knew exactly where you were. Once they reach the target, they held short and then they proceeded to go ahead and surround it. Now, this is when. Well, I don't know that this is who this is yet. So all I'm thinking as bullets are flying over my head is that I need to stay as low to the ground as I possibly can. And I am not going to survive. Like, I'm pretty sure finally this is Al-Shabaab or it's another plan that has come to get us. Um... And I know that I don't have the strength to survive another kidnapping, essentially. It's kind of like I've decided it's better the devil I know. Um, 
And so all of this is running through my head and, you know, I'm just praying (laughs) that I I don't get um, shot. And um, I pull a blanket tightly around me, hoping maybe no one will notice me. Um, And then I feel somebody grab my legs and my arms. Mm -hmm. And... And my, my memory is that I'm screaming and, and uh, trying to protect myself. I've come to find out that it wasn't. I just had my hands up in front of me. Um, and somebody pulls a blanket down from my face. And I can't see anything because it's just so dark, you know. But I can make out, like, silhouettes. like, And it kind of looks like masks and, and stuff. But it's just all very dark sheets. Um. And then I hear the voice of a young American man. Um, and he, he knows my name. Like he knows who I am. And he says, Jessica, it's okay. Um, I know you're scared, but you're going to be okay. Uh, we're the American military and you're safe now. We're going to take you home. Um, and it, he helps me sit up and <laughs> just shock just takes over and I start to shake uncontrollably. And all I can say over and over again is, you're American? You're American? Um, I don't, like, I don't understand. In my head, I'm thinking, like, how did, where did you come from? Like, I don't know how this could happen. I have, I don't understand. I just cannot make my mind understand what's going on. And one of them has a bottle of clean water and some medicine and gives it to me. And he says, you know, we've been watching you, you know, how sick you've been. Um, and another gentleman, um, asked me if I know where my shoes are. <laughs> and I, I, I don't know where my shoes are. And so he warns me, but says, I'm going to pick you up and carry you. And, and we need to get out of here. We need to get somewhere safer. Um, and so uh, he picks me up and throws me over his shoulder. And we just take off running through the field or he runs. I'm like <laughs> hanging out there, you know, and um, thinking, how can this be my life? You know, it's just like, I'm seriously, I'm a school teacher from Ohio, like, Like, how is this happening to me right now? Um, And then he puts me down. And my first question is, is Paul okay? Did he make it out okay? And he's sitting there. He's he's fine. And and he says, Jessica, do you know who these guys are? And I haven't gotten that far. And he says, this this is SEAL Team 6. These are the guys that got Bin Laden. And I'm like, Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, and, and then shock does, it just completely takes over and I can't stop shaking. I can't answer their questions. Like I can't. Yeah. Um, and you know, they're milling around, they're making sure the premises are safe and they come back. And then I, you know, it's like, um, it's not enough that these people that I don't know have jumped out of an airplane in the middle of the desert to come and rescue me. But then they 
have Paul and I lay down on the ground and several of them lay down on top of us. And then the rest of them form a shield, essentially like a human shield around our pile of bodies to protect us because they're not sure the premises are safe. It was pretty flat. And uh, the, the one thing that was in everybody's mind is, okay, so how close are any reinforcements for these guys? Cause yeah, you yeah. know, um, which is going through my mind as well. You know, I still don't understand the caliber of what has just happened and who is here. I'm thinking we all have to get out of here. We have to get out of here because I, you know, they're, they're, they're calling their people and they're, they're in cars and they're coming after it, you know, cause my mind is so has become so small and so scared of my captors and what they can do. And I also can't see it's dark. I don't know how many people are there and I don't know, I don't understand who this is or what this is until we're on a plane headed to Djibouti. And then it's like, what do you even do with that? Like, ha- like, you know what I mean? Like, ha- like, what do you do with, I don't know what to do with this. Yeah. yeah. Well, a lot of things to process. Something, yeah. uh, something happened right before the shots were fired. And I was in the operations center just watching the mission go down. And I was sitting next to the, to the mission commander. And he was fidgeting with his coin, much like the one that you have right now. And as they were reaching the bush, you guys were at cloud cover yes. just took out any visual that we had of what was going to happen and he says well i don't know if this is a blessing or a curse mm-hmm. that we're not about to see what's going to happen shots are fired everything was done in a matter of minutes you know it might have seemed like an eternity yeah. to you but it was done in a matter of minutes so now we have positive control we're bringing you back and uh we had you both uh under positive control of your governments. So before we get into the debrief part, you know, how you were able to get repatriated and everything else, I want to touch upon a little bit of, uh, of the military readiness that takes uh, to go ahead and execute a mission like, like the one that you were, you know, a part of. In the, the coin that I gave you, there's a, a phrase in there that says, amateurs train until they get it right, professionals train until they cannot get it wrong. And that takes years to do so. That group of operators, the special tactics airmen, the SEALs, the soldiers, the aviation component, the Air Force aviation components, they train around the clock to do just that. And it's it's my feeling now that sometimes when we have uh, a fair weather environment, people, especially the American public, tends to lose sight on the extent of how far these young men and women, some not so young, are willing to go to sacrifice their life for somebody that they don't even know. Not only that, but then give you that comfort once they come face to face with you to let you know that things are going to be okay. And then to be able to keep in touch with you after that happened, which is what happened with me. So we closed out the mission. Then we had several other days to where we start learning from everything that happened and so on. Then I move on assignment to assignment to assignment, but it wasn't until I got here to Washington DC and I started using LinkedIn that I stumbled upon you. 
and I reached out to you. What were your thoughts when you first heard about this random person that is reaching out to me? Well, I have to be honest. It happens to me a lot. Yeah. Um, I've been fairly vocal about my experience um, partially for that reason, mm -hmm. because I understand that there are so many people. I'll never be able to thank every single person, which is why um, Eric and I decided to write the book um, because we wanted people who were involved in bringing me back to know how grateful we were. And we didn't, we, we were very aware that we would never be able to thank every person individually. Um, and I am still like, it's been 10 years and I am still amazed that on a regular basis, someone will reach out to me and tell me that they played a part so, you know, tangentially or their family member did, or someone did. I mean, it's, it's mind blowing to think that you're just a regular person and that all of these resources and all of this talent and all of this um, commitment was channeled into bringing just one person home. Um, sometimes it can be a lot to like process. Um, but yes, you and I had a phone call and once I understood who you were, who you are, um, in the, um, role that you played, um, and now sitting here, I mean, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. It's funny how, uh, how life works and, uh, you know, not only, uh, do I have the notebook because I, I keep these things uh, for a reason um, because this is this is really what uh, what life's purpose is all about for an operator. Mm -hmm. But also on the second floor of the of these quarters, there's a, a souvenir that I picked up for my wife when I was uh, while I was deployed, an African souvenir, and uh, it was always meant to have double meaning because. She was under the impression that once I left the command, that I will never blow out of town, you know, at a moment's notice and just pick up my bag and go. And she's like, really, is this going to keep on happening for the rest of your life? Uh, luckily, it never happened after that. The other ones uh, were scheduled after that. But uh, also just to be able to, uh, to reflect on everything that happened on those few days and everything leading up to your rescue. Um, it's just good to remind yourself of the, the goodness of mankind, yeah. especially in the grossly negative environment that we live in nowadays. Mm -hmm. It's always good to remind ourselves, you know what, when the rubber meets the road, you know, we Americans are going to band together and we're going to make things happen just because we take care of one another. Yeah. I mean, will you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, I think people still matter and mm -hmm service to our country and to each other still matters. And, um, you know, why I have been so lucky to be the recipient of this, I don't think I'll ever understand or know, but I'm grateful. And I think that it's a really beautiful picture of when every single person is doing their part in striving to be the best version of themselves in their work um, then look what can happen 
So you mentioned the book. So you wrote the book and New York Times bestseller, Impossible Odds. Um, and then you started taking the, the, the speaking circuit, yeah. you know, not only because you wanted to tell the story, but most important, because you wanted to help people mm -hmm. understand this. There were a couple of things that you mentioned about your, your travels in Africa, you know, kind of like the complacency, just looking at my email, not paying attention, something didn't seem right. And then not following your gut that morning when you were having those nightmares. Mm -hmm. um, you work with a lot of nonprofit organizations now, specifically with hostage rescue type uh, scenarios. Uh, what are some of the key things that you tell them that you wish you would have known prior to this and that you want them to go ahead and, uh, and be prepared with? So I do support a DC based nonprofit called Hostage US and they are not involved in any kind of negotiation or rescue efforts, but they support families of hostages and detainees and then uh, during captivity or detention and then they support the returning hostage or detainee when they come back. Um, and the thing that I was very surprised and not at all prepared for was that, you know, you think that the actual captivity part is the hard part that you, the hard thing to survive, but the actual, the hard part is the surviving survival piece. And I think that this is not, this doesn't just pertain to people who've been held captive or detained. Um, it's anybody who's experienced a traumatic event in their lives. Like, how do you come back when something like that, like that significant has changed the trajectory of your life? You know, I, I lived And I, I love living and I'm so grateful for it, but I lost my job in my profession. Um, I essentially had to leave Africa because my PTSD was so extreme, which was not ever a part of my plan. Um, everything changed. Everything was different. And so I had to learn, I had to figure out how to rebuild, you know, um, and I think that that is very universal for all of us. Um, whether you've lost a job or um, a, you're grieving the loss of a friend or a family member or whatever it is, there is this, this mourning period that's finite and then the grief that comes with the loss. And, and in that grief, you have to figure out how you're going to make the choice to rebuild and reinvent yourself. And I um, talk a lot about that for returning hostages in that space. And I call it surviving survival because there's just not enough. I don't think there's enough research observation or support for people in the days after in the months after in the years after I'm 10 years out and I still cannot talk about this without crying. And I have healed exponentially so and i am good and i am happy and i am healthy but i still need support um, and i still need direction and and um, this i it's my life's journey it will never be over and i think that it's very important for people to understand that whether it's your loved one who's been affected or it's someone that you work with and um, surviving survival is real And it needs a lot more attention, I think, than we as a culture and a society give it. So I, I do a lot of work around that. And um, also 
I do a lot of work around women's empowerment because I feel it's very important for women to learn how to listen to their own voice, their own intuition and to trust it. And, and, you know, in my instance, in my case, I didn't, and it, it changed my life. And, um, while I'm able to extract meaning and I have worked really hard to rebuild, would never want to do that again. Um, and so I'm on a mission to empower women to hear their voice, to trust it and to listen to it and follow it. That was a, that was a very, very, uh, pointed statement that you made that uh, you disagree with Paul, but you decided to go anyways and you should have done different. Do you still keep in touch with Paul? No. No? After that repatriation took place, you guys split? We tried to a little bit, but we there was a lot of disagreement around why the kidnapping happened in the first place. Mm -hmm. You know, he disclosed to me on day 27 that there was very, rel like, relevant reason to believe that there had been a direct kidnapping threat on the organization, but that had not been disclosed to me. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, in the aftermath, I confronted my superiors and their answer was, we didn't think it was a viable threat. And my answer to that was, it's Somalia. It's always a viable threat. Informed yes. consent is a very important thing in your duty of care. And I felt that they had failed um, and it changed my life. And there was never any owning up to that. And so, you know, a lot of people ask me a lot about forgiveness. And I will say that I've never had a hard time forgiving the pirates because, you know, they weren't the ones that I was angry with. Um, maybe my anger was displaced, but I felt like my organization failed in their duty of care. Well, and, and, and that's critical because when you lose faith in the organization or if you feel that the organization is withholding things from you i mean it can definitely take your loyalty away from it absolutely um very very uh key to the way that uh, that you feel right now but the survival survival is it's, it's really interesting uh to me because in my current position as a senior enlisted advisor to the chairman uh, this particular year as an example we have a, a very very strong drive to go ahead and get after the issue of suicides mm -hmm. in the military and also a lot of issues with PTS. You know, like you, I have my own scars and I have learned to cope, but like you said, it never goes away. We'll never be able to shake this stuff off, but we learn to live with it. And part of the healing process of it is to share experiences yes. so that people can learn from it. As you see yourself moving into the future, now beyond the book, uh, now with your TEDx talks and everything else, what do you think is going to be the most value that you're going to bring to society based on your experience? Mm. I think this commitment that I have for empowering people and, you know, I generally focus on women because I feel like that's the group that I'm most, the audience that I'm most comfortable speaking with. But for anybody, um, to, I'm a big believer. This has taught me that life, the things that life brings you, they don't happen to you. They happen for you. And um, we were talking about how, you know, it's important for both of us to extract meaning from every situation that we encounter. And I think that that's the only way to make life survivable is <laughs> to find the meaning. And I think that that's why we've been put here is to, to figure out how to make it all mean something. And so, 
you know, what I do in my day to day, actually, in my professional life is I work with people to help them figure out what those things that have changed the course of their life, what it means. And then I help them speak about it because absolutely we have to talk about these things in order to reduce stigma, in order to reduce feelings of isolation in order to build community because we are so much stronger together than we are alone. And so often when people who have, and we've all, we, every single person on the planet experiences trauma, none of us escapes life unscathed. So if we can figure out what we want to say and how we want to say it, then we can take what we've experienced and we can turn it into, well, I think it leads us to our life's purpose. And I would have never in a million years seen myself sitting here on a podcast talking to you, (laughs) but here I am. Right. Um, And, you know, I think my bottom line is that you just have to keep showing up. Whether you're like sitting under a tree out in the middle of the Somali desert or you're sitting here um, on a military base having this conversation, whatever it is. And if you don't think you have the strength to show up, then you need to find somebody to help you to do it. And we have to be able to talk about that. And very, very strong point for anybody listening that, you know, purpose is a driver. You know, your courage is going to be the action mechanism for you to go ahead and do something. And then just your conscience, knowing that you did the right thing at the end of the day, it's really what's going to keep you going day by day. And it's a continuous cycle for us to do it. If you wouldn't mind, I want to share with you now the final thoughts that I had on the plane ride back from Djibouti to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. And this one I titled, A Lesson Learned in Dedication. And it reads, For the past 72 hours, I have witnessed a team of professionals work long hours to ensure the rescue of an American citizen. All came here with one goal in mind, bringing her back alive after close to 90 days in captivity. I saw planners work in every possible course of action, drilling down on every single what if to ensure we did not get it wrong. I saw maintenance crews take to the flight line to make sure the iron, meaning the planes, was ready to fly. I saw assaulters, operators, rehearsing and taking input from all the elements tasked with this mission. And I saw leaders taking ownership and ensuring all pieces were in place before we told the nation that we were ready to execute. Regardless of rank, position, or duty, The entire task force demonstrated excellence and dedication. Nobody whined, bitched, or complained. The common question was, what do you need? When we brought home the hostages, there was no loud celebration, but a clear sense of accomplishment and content by doing the nation's tough work. Only few could have pulled this off, and I am proud to be in the company of those few. We did the nation proud by ensuring the President of the United States' call to bring an American back was a mission accomplished. That was my thought when we got on that plane right back, especially looking at their faces once again. 
just that fulfillment that they had done something good. Mm. Jessica, we live in a good place and we have a lot of good people and uh, so many get bogged down by negativity. And something else that I saw on a post, I think it might have been a random post and I thought it was pretty catchy. And it was about positivity. And the post actually said, you know, don't be so negative, something I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Don't be so negative, but you know, because your house, the house that you live in is the dream of the homeless. Mm -hmm. Your health is the dream of the sick. Mm -hmm. And it just went down a list of basic needs of, uh, of being a human being. And as we sit here, we are examples of what good can happen when we actually decide to just go ahead and put our strengths together. Mm -hmm. This has just been an absolute honor to do this. If you have one thing that you want to say to every single one of those that haven't met you face to face, that had to do, I had something to do with the mission. Mm -hmm. What will you tell them right now? Thank you. Um, And I wake up every day and I spend an hour in gratitude for the life that I get to live that you, you brought me back to. And I'm working very hard to make you all very proud. Thank you. Well, you are. You are making us proud. You are uh, a shining example of what good can be done with the worst possible situation. But most importantly, like I told you upstairs, you are a symbol of hope for those that are potentially going to be put in situations. Mm -hmm. Jessica, I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being here with us today. Um, it's been a great conversation. Hopefully, you know, we'll continue to uh, stay in touch and we can help each other out with, uh, with our common goals in life to continue to help those that are struggling. But for the audience, we're going to post the links to this podcast, the video and the audio in the, a lot of our social media and other resources. And I want to also thank uh, Mike and Carlos for the outstanding work of setting this up and uh, getting us together to finally uh, do this. And lastly, um, I just want to tell the audience that this is just a small example of all of the great work that America does on a daily basis. Not much of it is publicized, a lot of it with reason, but it's happening every day. So for anyone that's got doubts about the effectiveness, the lethality, and the readiness of your Department of Defense, uh, take this as an example of what we can do on a moment's notice to be able to answer the call of the nation. So again, this has been your Bottom Line Up Front Podcast. Thank you for listening, and until the next time.